Life is an incredible archive of stories. If you do it right, or even if you do it wrong, just living long enough will supply you with a treasure trove of memorable adventures. The following memories take place over many decades. So settle in with a cold one and let me tell you a story. I first voted for President of the United States in 1972. I was a registered Democrat because, quite frankly, my parents were Democrats. You usually pull the same political lever as your parents when you vote in your inaugural presidential election. I was no exception. Most of my friends were Democrats, and the community that I grew up in was largely comprised of Democrats. There was one glaring exception. The father of one of my best friends was a Republican. Now, obviously, his was not the only Republican family in my hometown of Cedarhurst, but I bring this up for a very important reason. Dave's dad was a politician. More importantly, he was a lifelong Republican and patriarch of a Republican family. My dad was a lifelong Democrat and patriarch of a family of Democrats. I could tell you dozens of awkward moment stories that would happen whenever our two families got together. You know what I'm talking about, the small differences of opinion that somehow escalate into debates, name-calling, and the occasional insult. I could tell you those stories, but I would have to make them up because there were none. Dave's family and my family were fast friends. When I was growing up, having differing political beliefs didn't mean that you were bad people. We looked at each other as intelligent individuals who just happened to have a difference of opinion when it came to politics. And so, both our families were the antithesis of the political polarization of America. Our families, and others like us, exemplified how not to allow political office seekers to create divisiveness within the vast community of voters who ultimately put them into office. These days, it seems as if the electorate is locked into a perpetual game of good guys versus bad guys. It's a dangerous child's game played by adults. Politicians and their political parties make up the rules as they go along. You don't need to be a certain age or at a certain educational level to see when you're being played by politicians. All you have to realize is that getting the job comes first, keeping the job comes second, and everything else comes third. But politicians keep the smokescreen up with silly little catchphrases, cheering crowds, and loud rock music. That only serves to numb voters into believing that they've hitched their wagons to a workhorse who is interested in getting the job done. But that job doesn't get done by any one individual or any one party. It was designed as a collaborative effort for a very good reason. Contrary to popular belief, our founding fathers were not the visionaries or paragons of virtue that they've been made out to be. They were humans with human flaws. Realizing this, checks and balances were built into our governmental system in order to keep individual power and ambition from running amok. Let me give you one example that specifically relates to two of our founding fathers. When I mention the Boston Tea Party, what's the first thing that comes to mind? I'd be willing to bet that it's taxation without representation. The implication being that England had been unfairly taxing the colonies for quite some time. Finally, the colonists revolted when an unfair tax was levied upon the importation of tea. 
Dressed up like Indians, they boarded the cargo ships and dumped all the tea into Boston Harbor. That's what I learned and believed for a large portion of my life. It turns out that there's a lot more to this story. John, signed on the dotted line Hancock, and Samuel, tossed down a cold one Adams, wore many hats. Sam Adams was sometimes a brewer and at other times a newspaper publisher. John Hancock inherited a shipping business, the House of Hancock. They would both go on to become founding fathers of a country and governors of one of the states in that country. They were also smugglers and tax evaders. Which brings us back to the Boston Tea Party. You see, at the time, having colonies on the other side of the ocean seemed like a good idea to the British. That is, until the colonists started getting into fights with everyone from the Indians to the Canadians. The cost of supporting and protecting these future independent Americans was pretty much bankrupting the Bank of England. King George III attempted to raise money by taxing the colonists in several different ways, most of which affected wealthy businessmen. But he soon found out that enforcing the collection of those taxes was not an easy task. It turns out that wealthy businessmen don't like to pay taxes. Go figure. So the king came up with a plan B. He gave an exclusive trade license to the mega conglomerate, the East India Trading Company. The license allowed them to sell British tea to America. The cost of the tea would be much less than the colonists were already paying for Dutch tea. The money that he would receive from the East India Trading Company would help to offset the cost that England was incurring in America. Sounds like a win-win for everyone, right? Wrong. You see, Sam and John were making a pretty penny smuggling Dutch tea into the colonies. They knew that if tea consumers got a better deal, they were out of business. So they devised a plan to get rid of the competition. That was how the Boston Tea Party came into play, and the rest is, well, history. And so in the end, it wasn't retaliation over political and economic oppression that caused the tea to go swimming with the fishes in Boston Harbor. It was just business. Although times have changed, the people haven't. And by people, I mean we the people. Samuel Adams, the anti-politician politician, convinced the colonists that England was screwing them royally. The colonists missed out on a better deal because they blindly accepted what they were told. They never questioned Adams's motives or bothered to check if what they were being told was indeed true. Sound familiar? It should, because politicians have counted on this aspect of human nature since the beginning of political campaigning. Did you ever wonder how much gets done when the executive branch of the government and the Congress are the same political party? In 245 years, it's only happened 48 times. The answer to the question is a little tricky. The quick answer is that a lot gets done. But the not-so-quick answer is just the opposite. Let me explain. In the short term, without the balance of meaningful dissension by the other side, a lot of legislation gets passed. This legislation is usually signed into law by the president, but for the most part it's usually quantity over quality. Think of it as new software that's rushed to market and is full of glitches and security flaws. The laws will still function, but not up to their full potential. 
the consumers of these laws, namely the American voters and their families, will register their discontent by voting the other side in within the next two to four years. After that, a lot of the previous legislation will be drastically changed to the point where it is almost unrecognizable. It's usually quite some time before that same one-party sweep occurs again. So it appears that the political parties achieve substantially better results at the local level where the electorate and the politicians interact more with each other than with their respective parties. The further away that the politicians move from the people and the closer they move to the parties, the less effective they become. So why do voters keep reinforcing the two-party system? My guess is because voters are basically lazy. We've become comfortable with the two-party system. We know who the enemy is, and adding more enemies with more points of view would just confuse the issues. It's a love-hate relationship. We love being part of the party, but we hate the political system. We get excited about party primaries and caucuses, but we don't really understand how they work. The same goes for the electoral college process, and we stick to what we know. We find a candidate who shares one or more of our views, and we stay with that candidate. But while we might find solace in our ignorance of the political process, political parties also find solace in our ignorance. Politics today is a multi-billion dollar business. It should revolve around the needs of the country, but it actually revolves around power and influence, which is another way of saying money. We have created a political machine that is more about the machine than about the people who it was created to serve. By way of social media and psychological profiling, the political machine has learned how to control us faster and better than we have learned to control it. Which is probably why we, the people, should start thinking about creating a viable third party. We need a party that thinks about what is best for the country as a whole more than what's best for party partisans. If we create a party with the ability to siphon power away from the two parties that currently exist, we may find Republicans and Democrats working harder on policies that move the country forward instead of political game-playing that furthers their own careers. Until the journey brings us together once more, take care and stay safe.